Envision the Three-Legged Stool. Welcome to SBH Bronx Health Talk, produced by SBH Health System and broadcast from the beautiful studios at St. Barnabas Hospital in the Bronx. I'm Stephen Clark. The analogy is that we're only in the top of the second inning when it comes to eradicating COVID-19. Getting to the ninth inning means successfully building the three legs of the stool, testing, treatment, and prevention. With us to discuss the state of COVID-19 and take a look at what it will take to get us back to normal is Dr. Ed Telzak, an epidemiologist and chair of the Department of Medicine at SBH. Welcome, Dr. Telzak. Thank you, Steve. It's uh, a pleasure might be the wrong word, but nice to be back to document what's been going on. Yeah, it's been a journey, I know. I know last time we spoke, St. Barnabas, and other New York City hospitals had just started to flatten the curve. Things in the ER and the ICUs were a little less overwhelming. Has that continued? What are you seeing now? So I think now, almost two weeks later, the changes in, in many instances have been fairly dramatic. There are still areas of the hospital where that very high level of what I'll refer to as surge intensity uh, still exists. So the way I'm looking at the COVID journey at this point is that mitigation, which was the policy that was put in place perhaps a little more than a month ago by uh, Governor Cuomo that really enforced a fairly high level of social distancing, certainly not absolute social distancing, but a real change in people's behavior, closing down the restaurants, venues, where large numbers of people or even small numbers of people congregate. I think we're seeing many of the benefits of mitigation and social distancing. Uh, To my mind, It has clearly worked in New York State and in New York City, and this is no time to lighten up on mitigation. And I think we're seeing it at the public health level, and we're seeing it at a much more granular level of St. Barnabas Hospital. So if I can just go on for a bit. Sure, go ahead, yeah. So from the public health point of view, there are several lines of evidence that strongly suggest that mitigation is slowing transmission. I think we're not there yet, and so it's not a time to to lighten up. I really want to emphasize that. So, for example, the city routinely monitors ILI, influenza-like illness, the numbers of patients who come with a certain syndrome that suggests either influenza, the name influenza-like illness, or in this particular time period, COVID. How many of those patients with that syndrome or pneumonia come to emergency rooms? And across the city, the numbers of patients coming to the emergency room with those syndromes is down dramatically. ED visits in general are down dramatically. Hospital admissions are still happening, but they're also down fairly substantially. And most importantly of all, 
deaths are down, deaths due to COVID. And so a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing numbers in the mid to high 700s and occasional 800. We're now in the low 400s, still a shocking number. Most of these deaths are in New York City. So a really shocking number for one city to bear. But we are approximately half the number, we're having half the number of deaths now that we were experiencing a couple weeks ago. And just to bring it back to the level of the hospital, we in fact are seeing many fewer patients over the last four or five days coming to our emergency room. The patients who are coming to the emergency room, though fewer number, still remain very ill and disproportionately are being admitted to intensive care units. So they're very sick. But really for the first time over the last few days, we've had empty beds on the medical ward. Initially, it was three, four, five empty beds and just a couple of patients waiting in the emergency room. We now have 20 to 30 empty beds. And in fact, today we closed two of our smaller COVID wards. I would emphasize that the closed is a bit of a euphemism. They're for the moment not staffed, but we're all fully prepared to have to open them when mitigation begins to lighten up. I hope we don't have to, but given the aggressiveness of this particular um, infection, the transmissibility of this infection, I think there's certainly every possibility that when mitigation lightens up, transmission will increase and will begin, perhaps on a more modest level, that cycle of uh, illness, admissions, and hopefully not deaths. Why do you think, Dr. Telzak, it's going to be a more modest wave? I mean, when you hear about the governor of Georgia, quote, opening up his state, you know, opening up bowling alleys and restaurants and tattoo parlors, may it be more than just a modest increase at that time? The United States is a very large country. And the epidemiology of this particular pandemic varies from county to county, city to city, and certainly from state to state. So in my opinion, the governor of Georgia is so completely off base that even Trump recognized it as poor policy. I think in New York State and in New York City, the lightening up of the mitigation is going to be very gradual. It's going to be monitored very closely. And if necessary, it's going to be brought back as a way of decreasing infection. So I think it's over the course of months, it's really going to be a dance. It's lightening up a little bit and likely infections will increase. And then maybe it's tightening to decrease the number of infections. The public health in my worldview is first and foremost, though the public health is also greatly influenced by the economic environment. And I do think that we can't go on indefinitely with no economic activity or minimal economic activity. Uh, hospitals can't go on 
with not seeing patients who need other medical procedures, need other medical interventions. Uh, they need cardiac cast, they need surgery. And so all of that has closed down. We also have to lighten up very slowly, very deliberately, and monitoring extremely closely on efforts to decrease mitigation. But I think in New York, we will be monitoring that very closely. And so I suspect that we're not going to have the surge that we experienced in the first 10 to 15 days in April. Even though I'm not expecting it, I think we all need to prepare for it. I think the surge was such a traumatic event for everyone who worked in hospitals and certainly patients who were admitted to hospitals and their families that uh, we have to be better prepared if larger numbers of patients than we expect need hospital care. And a number of the clinical leaders in our institution have spent a series of calls reviewing documents that really are trying to come to terms with some of the mistakes we made, some of the lessons we've learned, and how to prepare for the possibility of an increased numbers of cases, and let's call it a, uh, a mini surge, uh, how to be prepared for that in terms of equipment, personnel, overall staffing that were really overwhelmed by the surge. It seems to me, again, from a layman's perspective, that those three parts of the stool, you know, this metaphysical stool that I talked about earlier, you know, need to be in place. There needs to be testing. From my perspective, it doesn't seem like we're that far ahead today than we were five or six weeks ago when it comes to testing. We certainly don't have treatments, regardless of what the White House may throw out there, you know, support the illness of someone who comes down with COVID-19. And from everything I've read, the vaccine is still 12 to 18 months away. Right. So I think you're largely correct. And the idea that the only activity from a public health point of view is lightening up on the mitigation is going to be the singular change, I think is not what people are planning. If you recall, perhaps in uh, mid to late February, when there were, or early March, when there were relatively few cases of COVID, that really was the time to learn from the Chinese experience and to learn from some of the other Asian experiences about the need to test, isolate, to quarantine contacts and to test contacts. That sort of shoe leather epidemiology, that's the most basic public health intervention. When mitigation lightens up and there are many fewer new cases, uh, we're still seeing about 1,300 new cases a day in New York State. When that number decreases, let's say weeks to a month from now, and things begin to open up, there will have to be an enormous, well-trained army of individuals, an entire infrastructure that will be able to locate people who are symptomatic, 
and with a very broad definition of what symptomatic means, because over time we're learning about the range of symptoms uh, from very mild, in fact, to asymptomatic, to very mild symptoms, to uh, overwhelming illness. But those individuals will need to be rapidly tested. They'll have a result almost immediately in the best of all worlds. If it's positive, they'll be isolated. And then the effort to do contact tracing, to identify each and every person over an extended period of time, perhaps 10 to 14 days, that they've had substantial interaction with. And those people will have to be located, those people will have to be tested, and will have to be quarantined for a period of time. And perhaps even their contacts, and for those who test positive, then their contacts will need to be located. Are you confident this is doable? Well, I mean, just by describing it, you can see what the enormous effort involved in doing this. It has worked in many other infectious illnesses. It certainly worked in tuberculosis in the mid-80s. There was a very aggressive outbreak of both drug-sensitive and multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. And in fact, through aggressive contact tracing, finding cases, isolating cases, treating cases, that was able within a period of about a year that cases were able to decrease dramatically. Now, this is of a much larger scope. In New York City, complex series of micro environments with different cultures, different languages, different population densities, different levels of trust in the healthcare system. Am I confident it can happen? I feel like it has to happen. We really have no choice. I don't think it's something that New York City or New York State can do on their own. I think it requires a fair amount of federal support. You think there is support from the government? I think there's a little bit of support from the Centers for Disease Control, but not at the level that's required. New York State has had an offer by Michael Bloomberg. So, you know, Michael Bloomberg is the ex-presidential candidate, mayor of New York. But I think for purposes of our discussion today is really the preeminent, perhaps with Bill Gates, public health philanthropist. He made enormous progress in a number of public health issues in New York City, smoking, for example. And he has offered to put together both the resources and the personnel to begin to develop this army of individuals who once again will find people who are symptomatic, test people who are symptomatic, find the contacts of those individuals, test and isolate those contacts, and if necessary, find their contacts to really uncover the chain of transmission, which is until there is effective treatment and prevention, meaning the vaccine, will be the only way to contain this epidemic, this pandemic, in the face of lightning mitigation. I think mitigation at this level for the next year or year and a half is not practical. I think it's practical for another month, for another six weeks at the most, but we should be utilizing this time 
to really develop that infrastructure that could make a very dramatic difference in the numbers of cases that we eventually see and in our ability to open up the economy even modestly. Yeah, I agree with everything you say. I just, what concerns me is sort of this whack-a-mole situation where while it may be dying down in New York City, in other parts of the country, especially now that we've opened up the country, the likelihood of people getting infected again and dying and people coming to New York. It's not like we have barriers and, you know, New York City or New York State is working in isolation of people who are in South Carolina or in Georgia or or God knows where. To me, that seems like it could muck up the situation. Well, I think it certainly can. To the credit of, you know, Cuomo and the six or seven governors who are working if not a uniform way, at least in a coordinated way, to develop this type of system, as well as to open up the economy in a coordinated fashion, I think that will help somewhat. I think similar relationships have developed with the West Coast governors, with the Northern Midwestern governors. So that covers a fair amount of the country. But this is not a federal plan. These are plans, and Trump was very clear that he's not willing to take responsibility for controlling this pandemic. He's leaving it to the governors. The governors, many of the governors recognize that doing it at the level of one state is not adequate. So they've joined forces. I think that's a start. I think the states that don't work together the states that open up too early, I fear that there will be very significant consequences at which point they too will learn that mitigation needs to be continued until a variety of metrics are achieved and then very strict testing, contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, developing this large workforce who can implement these plans will be necessary. So I think there will still be a lot of suffering. I think states that lighten up on mitigation will suffer in the future more than states who have a much more coordinated plan, who develop contact testing, robust testing and contact tracing. But I think all of that is is unfolding. I'm optimistic about what certain states are doing and very pessimistic about what other states are doing. I think there's one potential confounder here, which we have yet to fully understand. We received some information yesterday, perhaps the day before, that New York State did a somewhat random sample of individuals who were out and about at grocery stores throughout the state men, women, people of a variety of races, ethnicities, inner city, suburban, rural. They did 3,000 antibody tests. They found that approximately 14% were positive. Many of them were asymptomatic throughout the course of COVID. And in New York City, that number was in excess of 20%. I haven't seen any information, for example, of what's greatest interest to me, which is the zip codes around St. Barnabas and likely 
there's not sufficient statistical power to provide adequate information at the zip code level. But one-fifth, more than one-fifth of New York State has antibodies, which very strongly suggests that they've had exposure and infection to coronavirus. The great mystery at the moment with respect to antibodies is whether these antibodies will prove to be protective. And if they are protective, how long they'll be protective for. The best case scenario where individuals have antibody, a large number of individuals have antibody. And if the antibodies are protective, a big if, but if they are protective, that would be a workforce that you could send out and they could begin to pick up some of the economic pieces that have broken. I think that as we do larger studies, as we do more focused studies, uh, geographically, by race, by ethnicity, by gender, healthcare workers, and as time goes on, and many more people have antibody testing, we will get a handle on whether or not these antibodies are protective, and if they are, for how long. But I think that's one of the great unknowns at the moment that could be very beneficial or could be not beneficial. Yeah, it seems to me it's sort of like the tortoise and the hare in the sense that the contact tracing, the testing is going to take months, if not longer. And I know the president and a lot of people are saying, is there that miracle drug out there? Is there anything at the end of the tunnel, the light at the end of the tunnel, where there is a drug that maybe can save us time? And in, you know, in two months, in six months, there would be something out there that could treat this, this virus. Well, there are probably five or six interventions that are currently being used. None of them have been shown to be effective, to make sick people better, to shorten the course of mildly ill individuals, or to decrease uh, morbidity or mortality. So we do not have an effective agent. I'd like to think of the only effective medication we have at this point is really oxygen. There is no other intervention that we can use on patients. There are plenty of interventions that we are using, but I do not have confidence that any of them are going to be proven to be effective. We've just received expanded access remdesivir, which is a, uh, an intravenous drug. There's early preliminary, or there was some early preliminary data from the expanded access trials that showed that a small group of patients who were intubated had a fairly high rate of being extubated, being taken off mechanical ventilation. But it was a very small number. It's expanded access, so we don't know how those patients were chosen. Maybe there were patients that were chosen who were already doing better and were more likely to be taken off a ventilator. We don't know that. There are two randomized trials of remdesivir versus placebo. And those trials have finished enrollment 
And I assume that now they're in the data cleaning up and data processing, which I'm sure that lots of people are working around the clock to understand whether there's any beneficial effect. But we'll know in a couple of weeks whether this drug has some benefit through, I think, the Financial Times, uh, who picked up that there was a, an article out of China using remdesivir that showed that it was not efficacious, but it was not peer-reviewed, and uh, it was immediately taken off of the WHO website, and it was mistakenly put on. So I think we don't really know about remdesivir. There are more trials planned. Remdesivir is not a drug that was designed specifically for this agent. It's an off-the-shelf drug, as is uh, hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. But you're right, we're very deficient as we speak in treatment interventions. And we're certainly at the very earliest stages of vaccine development. When we're talking about rapid testing individuals who are symptomatic, finding their contacts, testing their contacts, those are interventions that will change dramatically once we have effective treatment. There's certainly no guarantee, and I would say there's a reasonable likelihood that we will not find effective treatment before we find a vaccine, that they're both being developed in tandem, and both will be important. But which comes first, I think we'll find out when we're doing this podcast uh, in a year from now, hopefully. Right. Well, again, the vaccine, everything you read is that it's 12 to 18 months off. Do you you agree with that? I think it's at least that amount of time off. And, you know, when you're giving something to hundreds of millions of people, most of whom or the overwhelming majority, or almost everyone, is asymptomatic, you need to be absolutely certain that the vaccine doesn't have any unintended side effects. And the only way to be as certain as possible is to do a very large clinical trial. If you do what we would consider a large clinical trial, a thousand people, and a toxicity that's very serious occurs in one in 10,000 people, but you're giving, which sounds low, but you're giving the drug to 300 million people or 500 million people, you're going to get a lot of people who get very sick who wouldn't have otherwise gotten sick. So before a vaccine is released, there are multiple phases of drug testing, toxicity testing, but then there's a very large phase three trial that needs to really keep a close eye on potential side effects of a vaccine that's given to an extremely large number of people. I I would say that, you know, we have the flu vaccine every year and we have measles vaccine and we have a lot of very effective vaccines. I'd say the flu vaccine is marginally effective, but there are a lot of people who won't take vaccines also. But putting that aside, I think your concern that the vaccine is not going to be available for a considerable period of time is a very accurate concern. I want to end it with one question, which is a concern, obviously, today. But looking back to 1918 and the Spanish flu, which did 
seemed to be cyclical and, and seemed to come back different parts of from 1918 to 1923 or something. How did we get out of that? I mean, medicine was very different in those days. Right. There was supportive care we were able to provide individuals was much less adequate. Although I would argue that much of the supportive care we're providing patients with COVID has not been as effective as we might have predicted. There are a lot of patients who are on mechanical ventilation, who die on mechanical ventilation, have very prolonged courses, and will be filling up some of our hospitals and nursing homes. They never get extubated. Flu is a very different virus. The flu virus mutates often, not always in a predictable fashion. And I think the Spanish flu, we basically mutated out of the, the Spanish flu pandemic, worldwide pandemic. There's no evidence that can or will happen with coronavirus. So again, you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but if you were looking four months, eight months, a year from now, and someone said, what's going to happen? How would you answer that? I will say that we will continue to have one or two COVID wards. We'll continue to have a section of our ICU that's dedicated to COVID patients and that the numbers will wax and wane perhaps every month, every other month. Uh, mitigation will lighten, mitigation will tighten. Contact tracing will be marginally effective, not absolutely effective. And that until there is very effective treatment and until there's a vaccine, COVID is gonna be in our life for the next year at a, at a minimum. I don't want to leave on such a pessimistic note, but certainly not at the levels that we've seen over the last month. I don't think we're going to achieve those that surge. I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm hopeful that antibodies will be protective. Now, hope is not a strategy, but still, if they are protective, that could be a real game changer in terms of large numbers of previously infected individuals who might have a degree of protection going out into the wider world and becoming economically productive. Right. Now, I was watching the NFL draft last night. Are we going to see stadiums in the fall that are going to be empty? Is it going to be uh, everyone six feet apart? I think that small numbers of people will assemble that there will be mitigation in many different kinds of environments. So for example, if a restaurant was to open up, there would probably be social distancing. And, you know, so there'll be fewer tables and people will sit further apart. The tables will be larger. You know, there are ways, they sound very awkward now, perhaps impractical, there will not be large stadium events over the next year. The only way there'll be sporting events is if there are, you know, I can imagine in Yankee Stadium, 10 people in every section. But the days of 
very large numbers of people in stadiums, that's gone until there's a vaccine. And I think many things will be different until there's a vaccine. Right. Well, Dr. Telzak, thank you very much for joining us on SBH Bronx Health Talk. This was really interesting. And again, for more information on COVID-19 or to donate to the effort in the fight against the virus, visit www.sbhny.org. And thank you for joining us today.